So we're going to be reading 1 John chapter 4, and Caroline's going to come and read that for us now. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false spirits have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Saviour of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Good morning. I hope you are well.
One of the terms we've been getting to know recently in the, the last few years is the, the term deepfake. Uh, deepfake is a, a form of using artificial intelligence to create videos of, of people doing things and saying things that they never actually did. Uh, in the past, we had photoshopping. You could play around with, a, with an image. This is now creating extremely realistic videos. And it's caused all kinds of issues. You may know that part of the reason the Hollywood actors are on strike at the moment is because there's not sufficient kind of guidelines on, on how these things can be protected against. And there's been a number of times when some video of a celebrity or of a, even of a world leader has gone viral before people have realized it was all fake. They, they look that realistic. And it makes it much harder now to distinguish between what is genuine and what is synthetic. And that is true as well when it comes to faith. Um, it can be hard sometimes to distinguish between what is, what is real and what is synthetic, which is why we have this chapter of the Bible. Uh, John is taking two aspects of our, of our Christian lives and showing us how to spot the true form from the counterfeit. So the first half of our passage, uh, verses 1 to 6, he shows us spirituality, what is, what is recognizable about true spirituality. And then the second half of our passage, we look at the whole issue of love. What is, in fact, true love? Uh, both of these things we need to know because in both cases, there are deep fakes out there. Uh, there is much that looks spiritual. There's much that looks as though it, it really is love. And we need to be, able to be those who can distinguish. So that's what we're looking at this morning. The danger otherwise is that we might think we are being spiritual when we're not. Or we might think we are being loving when we're not. So let's think firstly about true spirituality, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. As we were finishing off chapter 3 uh, yesterday morning, John said this, and by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. John hasn't said much yet about the work of the Spirit, but he mentions the Spirit there at the end of chapter 3. And we need to recognize that the Holy Spirit is not the only Spirit that is out there. There are other Spirits too. And so John is saying, well, it's by the Spirit that we know that he abides in us. So the question then is, well, how can we tell if something is of the Spirit? How can we tell if something is of God's Spirit and not some other spirit? So John is anticipating that in these verses. He says in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. And then at the end of verse 6, by this we know the Spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this paragraph is going to help us to recognize true spirituality. Well, the first thing John says for us in verse 1 is that we do need to be discerning. So verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. We must not be people who believe everything. Uh, the reality is there are false prophets. Uh, they do exist. They have gone out. Not everything that is claiming to be spiritual, not everything that seems spiritual 
is from the Lord. Uh, John says there that many false prophets have gone out. John is not saying, listen, there's, there's, there may be one or two at some point, so just keep that in mind. No, John is saying there are many already. Um, I know in London, and maybe in, this is true in other places as well, occasionally you'll see a sign up in the, in the train station or down in the underground that, that just says, pickpockets are known to be active in this area. And so you, as a, someone travelling through there, you, you see the sign, you think, okay, yep, I've got to be particularly mindful of that. Where's my wallet? Where's my phone? Well, John is saying, false prophets are known to be active in this area. Wherever we happen to find ourselves, many have gone out into the world. And he describes them as false prophets. He says, verse 1, do not believe every spirit. These are, these are going to be people who, who seem very credible. They're going to look the part. They're going to sound the part. They're going to be compelling. Uh, in movies, it's, it's often obvious who the bad guy is. They look shifty. Or they have an English accent. Or both. Everyone employed by the Death Star seems to be, seems to be British for some reason. We just, we just sound sinister, evidently. But when it comes to false spirits and false prophets, it is not as obvious. The devil is far more subtle. People don't come up to you and say, hey, I've, I, I want to share with you a belief that will take you far away from Jesus Christ. Do you want to hear me out? No, these are false prophets. They look and sound like they are speaking with, with God's word. They have authority and conviction. They, they seem to know God. They look legit, but are actually false. And notice that it, it is all of us that needs to learn how to be discerning. John isn't just writing this paragraph to the leaders of the church. They have a particular responsibility to, to protect the sheep from falsehood. But it is all of us that, is being, that are being told to test the spirits. The whole Christian community has the responsibility to be discerning. It's not unchristian to weigh what you are being taught. It's not unchristian to test, to question. I had a member of my church come up to me a few weeks ago and say, hey, I just wanted, something came up in a sermon a few weeks ago. It's been bothering me. I'm not sure it's right. Can we sit down and talk about it? And they were, they were sort of asking me in an, in an apologetic tone of voice. And I said, no, this is, this is exactly what you should be doing. Uh, you're you're honouring your pastor and you say, I've, I've got a couple of questions about what you said. You're not meant to just take it from us. That's why it's great to have... Bibles in, our, in, in front of us or on our phones so that as we're, as we're hearing we can check it against what the, what the Bible says and we can already be doing, we can be doing that right now. Testing what I'm saying against what the Bible says. Uh, we mustn't be cynical. Uh, J, John does not say don't believe anything. He says don't believe everything. We are to weigh what we hear, we are to weigh what we receive. 
Okay, thanks, John. How do we do that? Well, there are two things in this paragraph that he draws our attention to, two ways of testing and weighing, two ways of discerning. The first is to do with the person of Christ and whether the person of Christ is being rightly understood and taught. The second thing is is the authority of the apostles. So let's look at each of these. Verses 2 and 3. We've got to be clear about the truth of Jesus. So the first way we test the spirits is in verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Now, John is very deliberate in the language he's using. I mentioned um, a couple of times that there is this movement going on at the time that John is writing. And this movement was, was taking people away from orthodox, apostolic Christianity. And part of what these, this new movement was saying was that the Christ only came upon Jesus for part of Jesus' life. Uh, the best we understand is that they were teaching something like the Christ came upon Jesus at his baptism and then left him before his death, that God did not become fully human. They didn't believe the Christ truly became flesh. And so they were denying the incarnation. They were denying that God became man. So we've got to be very clear on this. We, we need to make sure that we, we understand who Jesus is. There are going to be those who deny Jesus' divinity. So they'll talk about the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but they won't speak about him as someone who is, in fact, divine. Uh, our Muslim friends revere Jesus as a prophet, but would never worship him as God. Maybe we have friends who are Jehovah's Witnesses and, and believe something similar. Uh, there, there have always been parts even of, of the Christian world that have denied the divinity of Jesus. Parts of, of the liberal kind of part of, of Christianity would, would deny, in some cases, the divinity of Jesus. And it, it's easy to speak of Jesus as being inspired in the sense of he was you know, a unique man who had much to contribute I was speaking to someone just recently who said, Jesus is a great example, but he's not more than that. And yet we've already seen that the Jesus John is speaking about is the Jesus who was from the beginning. The one who himself is eternal life. We need to hold on to that. The one we call Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. And there are some, of course, who deny his humanity. This was closer to what was going on at the time of of 1 John. But the the belief then was, well, physical bodies are are too yucky, too dirty, too unspiritual. God, God would never roll up his sleeves and get so involved in physical humanity. God is just about the intangible, the floaty spiritual kind of things. The physical world is is too too gross for God to step into it in that way. He might appear as a human for a while, but he would never become a human. 
Which is why John uses this language that he does. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Jesus wasn't putting on a kind of costume. Jesus came in the flesh. And if we deny either of those things, well, John shows us we're no longer in Christianity. It's no longer a Christian thing that we are saying. This is what distinguishes the work of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Antichrist. Is whether we have understood who Jesus is. Several years ago, I was in the, the Canadian Rockies, and we were doing a tour and being taken to, to various places. And at one point, we were traveling through some mountains, and the coach stopped, and we were all told to get out and have a look. And we were looking around, thinking, well, I mean, it's all amazing because it's the Canadian Rockies, but this, nothing looks particularly significant here. But we were told this is the Continental Divide. And in fact, there was a little sign somewhere, and I think a little line on the road or something like that. And we were going, oh, wow, that, that's great. But what is a continental divide? What are we standing on here? It didn't look particularly dramatic. It didn't look geographically significant. But the idea is that the rain falling on one side of this line drains to the west and ends up in the Pacific. Rain falling on the other side of this line drains to the east and ends up in the Atlantic. And so two raindrops falling near each other can end up Thousands of miles apart. And John is showing us something very similar when it comes to our understanding of Jesus. If we, if we miss this, we end up in a vastly different place to Christianity. We end up going in vastly different directions. Some people may say, well, we, we basically believe the same thing. You believe that Jesus was divine. We, we believe he's really special too. And you're thinking, no, you are the other side of that line to me. We need Jesus to be both fully divine and fully human. Otherwise, he cannot save us. If he's just another human being, even a remarkable human being, he has the same limitations, he has the same problems as anybody else. He can't take my sin away from me if he's got his own sin. But if Jesus was divine but never really a human being, he can't represent me. He can't take my place. It's why John has been using the language that he has during this letter back in chapter 2, Verse 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Someone who is able to speak for us, Jesus Christ the righteous. Human and yet sinless. He says something similar in chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. We need him to be like us in the right way, fully human, and we need him to be unlike us in the right way, without sin. And only by being fully divine and fully human can Jesus actually be our saviour. Which is why John says there in uh, chapter 4, that we need to be those that confess Jesus. Not just enough to acknowledge him, 
Not even enough to recognize him. The spirits recognize Jesus in the Gospels. The demons do that. They, they know exactly who he is. They, they recognize him, but they don't confess him. To confess Jesus is to say, he is my hope. He's my boast. I'm, I'm putting the full weight of my, of my life on him. I'm putting all of my chips on Jesus. That is what it means to confess him. So that's the first way we we test the spirits. Are they clear about the person of Jesus? Uh, The second thing is is to do with the authority of the apostles. So John says in verse 4, again, he's he's at pains to reassure his readers. He's he's not telling them this stuff because they've been getting it wrong. He says to them, verse 4, Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. John's readers haven't fallen for this teaching. But it's not because they're all super clever and, and really amazing. They, they haven't fallen for this because of who is in them. You have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Uh, you might remember from yesterday, John was telling us in verse 20 of chapter 3, that when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. We need to know that. We also need to know God is greater than the one who is in the world. God dwells in us, and so he helps us to test the spirits. He helps us to overcome. And John makes another distinction at this point between the the false teachers and the true teachers. Verse 5, they are from the world. Not just, you know, that's, that's their point of origin, but that is their frame of reference. That's where they get everything from. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world. They have no external perspective to offer. And so what they teach is invariably the gospel of man recycled. It is not the gospel of God. And that means, again, verse 5, that the world listens to them. The world likes that. It's been interesting as I've, I've been thinking about this verse. It, it's actually, this is very counterintuitive. I used to think, well, if the, if the Bible is inspired by God, why doesn't everyone see that? John is saying, actually, the fact everyone doesn't automatically instantly see that and receive it as that, is a sign that it is from God. Because the world likes to listen to what is from the world. The very fact that the Bible comes to us from outside this world in its ultimate origin is why the world doesn't agree with it. You would expect that. You would expect that that a word that comes from outside human culture, human reference, human wisdom, is not going to go with the grain of how we generally like to think. So the fact that the world doesn't just automatically listen 
So the message of Christianity is one of the evidences that the message of Christianity really is from God. Well, John contrasts that with the apostles. He's just been talking in verse 4 to his readers, you. He's been talking about the false teachers in verse 5, they. Now he speaks about himself and his fellow apostles, we. And I make that point, I hope, clearly because... What John is about to say, only John and the apostles get to say. So verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. I don't get to say that. And if I did turn up at my own church one Sunday and get into the pulpit and say, hey guys, just just a reminder, I'm from God. And if you know God, you listen to me. And anyone who doesn't listen to me doesn't know God. You'd you'd kick me out, as you should. There are pastors who would never say, I am the gospel but who believe their own authority so absolutely that if you question them, you are questioning the gospel. Which is itself a form of false teaching. The apostles have the authority of Jesus to speak for him. And so the words of the apostle John here come to us with the same authority as the, the, the words Jesus himself spoke. So I'm not a fan of, of the Bibles that put the words of, of Jesus in red letters. Because all the apostles say are effectively words of Jesus to us. But it means that if, if anyone is then disagreeing with the apostles or actually taking on themselves the authority of the apostles, we need to be very careful. I've heard some Christians say, well, I love Jesus, I really don't like Paul. Well, Paul speaks with the authority of Jesus. Paul is speaking in the name of Jesus. So, friends, we must... Test the spirits. And the two ways John gives us to do that are are in reference to the person of Jesus. Are they teaching the Jesus who is fully God and fully man? And he does it in reference to the authority of the apostles. Is what is being said lining up with the unique authority that the apostles have? Well, John then moves on from true spirituality, from synthetic spirituality, to thinking about what marks true love from synthetic love. And we move to to verse 7 for this. John says something, again, we've we've heard a few times now. John tends to, again, circle round the same general areas, but each time with a a different spin is the wrong word, but you know what I mean. He comes from a slightly different angle each time. So verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Yep, we, we got that already, John, thanks, yes. But notice what he says this time round. Let us, let, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. John gives us a new reason to, to love. Love is 
is fundamental to who God is. Love is from God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because not just love is from God, but God is love. That does not merely mean God is really good at love. Though he is. It's not as if, hey, all of us have had a go at love and and God's, God's better than the rest of us. It's more than that. God is love. It's not just something he does. It's something he is. It's fundamental to who he is. And as we've already seen from from this letter, it is not the only thing God is. God is love. God is also light. We're told in other places God is spirit. We're also told God is a consuming fire. But John wants us to see now that God, the fact that God is love is is another impetus for us to love one another. Now, I want to pause on those three words, God is love, just for a moment, because they are so easily misunderstood. Many people today in our own cultural particular moment tend to hear the words God is love and think what that means is anything I feel and interpret as love God likes. And so I've seen people trying to justify relationships that the Bible prohibits on the basis of, well, this is love and God is love. So he he must approve of this. Actually, what you're doing then is you're effectively saying love is God, which is what our culture believes. I forget the quote and forgot to look it up, but C.S. Lewis said once that it, it doesn't take long from love being God to love being a demon. No, what God is love means is not that anything I think is love God approves of. What God is love means is that God knows far more about love than I do. And so I'm going to need to listen to God to learn how to love people well. More on that tomorrow as we look at chapter 5. Again, Paul said, uh, Paul, John said uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We know enough in in our culture about love to know that it really matters. We don't know enough to be sure what love truly is in any situation. And so we need God to show us. Well, what does God show us about real Love. Well, a few things in this text. The first thing we say is that that the love God shows us is costly love. So verse 9, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. God did not send a memo. God did not send us a, hey, here's a YouTube video on how to fix what's gone wrong here. He didn't even just send warm feelings. He sent his son. Specifically, he sent his son so that we might live 
through him. The life we naturally lack is found in Jesus, and we can only find that life through the coming death and resurrection of Jesus. Without him, all we have is the death that we deserve. But through him, we can begin to have the life that he deserved. Paul goes, uh, Paul, forgive me, John. I was reading Romans this morning. My brain is slow. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Again, this shows us the costliness of love. It was costly for Jesus to come into this world, to become human, to have to grow up, to physically develop, to live among us. But more than that, Jesus' coming was a propitiation. Uh, To make someone propitious is to make them favorable when they would otherwise have been angry. Jesus being a propitiation means he is the one who satisfies God's anger. Now, you learn about the predicament when you're taught about the solution. That we needed a propitiation shows us our problem is not merely that sin makes us miserable. Though it does. Our ultimate problem is that sin provokes God's anger. Because as we saw yesterday, sin is us saying to God, I could do your job better than you do. And so the biggest problem facing humanity is not sin, but God's judgment against sin. And so we need a propitiation. In other words, our sins need to be removed and the offense of our sin also needs to be dealt with. Uh, Let me give you a a silly example. Imagine you, you... track me down and you find my my house in Nashville and you get a a big pot of paint and you decide to write on the wall of my house something deeply offensive. Hershey's chocolate is amazing. Something like that. Something (laughs) profoundly and and terribly wrong. And then after a while you've done that and you think, ha ha. And then you, you know, several minutes later you're overcome with a bit of remorse and you think, you know what, that, that... Shouldn't have done that. That was, a, that was a jerk thing to do to Sam. We shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. Let's, let's, let's paint over it. So you paint over it. Now you've, in one sense, you've taken away the sin, but I'm still offended that you did it. And it's not just removing the sin, it's dealing with the offense. Which is why Jesus is not merely the one who expiates our sin by taking them away. He's the one who is our propitiation. He satisfies God's wrath. By shedding his blood. It was costly. For as Jesus died on the cross, he he said, why have you forsaken me? He stepped into the forsakenness that we deserved. His love was that costly. Next, we, we see that God's love is initiating. 
Look again at verse 10. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. Our Christianity is not about our love for him. It's, it's always about his love for us. That's the focus. Our love for God, such as it is, is, is only the consequence of his love for us. It's not that we, you know, we managed to get our act together and God recognized that and then started to love us. No, God loved us when he had no reason to. God loves us not because of what we're like. He loves us because of what he's like. Not that we are lovely, but that he is love. This is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. It's interesting, as we think about the death of Jesus, as the, as the New Testament unpacks that for us, I don't think there is an instance after the death of Jesus of the apostles speaking of God's love in the present tense. Because the love of God is so tied now, so defined now by the death of Jesus, God's love is referred to in the past tense. For God so loves the world, God so loved the world. Not that we love God, but that God loved us. We see that initiating aspect of God's love again in verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Our love is only ever a response to his love. So you might say, we don't so much say to God, I love you, as we say, I love you too. That love is costly, that love is initiating, and that love is transforming. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we don't have to fear judgment day. We can come with confidence. Sometimes someone says, you know, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just, just overlook things? Well, of course, that would question God's moral integrity, but as well as that, it wouldn't give us assurance. Because if God just turned around one day and said, you know, don't worry about it, I've just decided your your sin's not a problem. Don't don't worry, we're we're fine. How do I know he's not, on another occasion, going to turn around and say, well, actually, no, no, it actually is a bit of an issue. It's a bit like when you, you have a, Maybe you've offended your spouse or something, and they say, it's fine. (laughs) Don't need to talk about it. We're fine. And you know it's not. Because the next time something comes up, they then bring this up. No, we can have confidence for the day of judgment precisely because God has so thoroughly dealt with our sins. Back in... Uh, Chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To to not forgive us our sins on the basis of the death of, of Jesus, God would have to quit being God. 
He would have to become faithless and unjust. But that love isn't just transforming to us. It doesn't just mean that, that we can have confidence rather than fear. That, that love is also transforming for the world around us. Uh, John starts to put this on our radar in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's something about all of this that is, is becoming manifest and visible in this world. We are becoming more like Christ ourselves. Again, as I said yesterday, the love we've received from God, we are now beginning to embody. Not perfectly, but really. And look at what he says in verse 12. This is on my list now of verses I would never believe if they weren't actually there in the Bible. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. That's a a point the Bible makes repeatedly. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. What's John saying? Well, in John's gospel, in John chapter 1 verse 18, John said something similar. He said, no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. In other words, when the word did become flesh, God was now visible. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen. Jesus made God visible. And John is now telling us, astonishingly in verse 12, that there is now another way of of seeing God in this world. No one has ever seen God If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. As we love one another, we are showing God to the world. Which is why John rounds off chapter 4 in this way, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has, has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. As we love one another, we're not just being consistent with our beliefs, we are making God more visible. It was Jesus who said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. By your love for one another. How does that work? Jesus is saying, as we love one another, yes, people will go, there's, there's something special there. But Jesus is saying, by this will all people know that you are my disciples. There's something so uniquely otherworldly about the love of Christ as we seek to express it among one another, that actually people begin to realize something, something heavenly is going on here. This is not merely normal humanity, but a bit nicer. This is a different species of love. 
Um, I forgot to look this up as well, forgive me. But uh, the, the planet Neptune was the first planet to be discovered not by sight, but by mathematics. Some people were studying a, another planet and were, were noticing there was a, a weird irregularity in its orbit. There was a kind of kink in its orbit. It wasn't going in the, the way they, they expected it to. And the more they, the more they kind of studied this, this kink in its orbit, the more they began to think, okay, there's something else further out there that is kind of tugging on it. There's another gravitational force further out. And they were able to extrapolate doing their calculations from the, this unpredictable bit of the, of the orbit where that other planet was, and they were able to discover Neptune before anyone saw it. It was the only thing that accounted for this, this strange irregularity. And the love of God for us, and the love of God through us for one another is so irregular that a watching world will, will look and think something else is having an effect on these people. There is the gravitational force of a different kind of love, a stronger kind of love that is settled on these people. that will then eventually lift their eyes heavenwards to find Jesus. There are deep fakes out there. We're going to have more of this, not less. And there are spiritual deep, deep fakes too. Things that look spiritual, that feel spiritual, but aren't. There's deep fakes of love out there. But by God's grace and for God's glory, we can enjoy the reality. Let me pray. Our Father, we pray that you would give us discernment and wisdom to spot true spirituality from counterfeit, true love from counterfeit love. Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for who he is, the one who is fully divine and yet became fully human. The one who not only lived in this world, but gave his life as a propitiation for us. And in so doing, made your love manifest and knowable to us. And we pray that that same love would so grip us, so shape us, that that same love, even through us, becomes knowable to a watching world. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.